The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its hosts are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. Now the thing about time is that time isn't really real. It's just your point of view. How does it feel for you? Einstein said he could never understand it all. Planets are spinning through space. Smile upon your face. Welcome to the human race. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. I am your host for Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm Jay Taylor, and I'm also the editor of Jay Taylor's Gold, Energy, and Tech Stocks. That's a weekly and a monthly newsletter. We are having a very good year this year. Um, I will talk to you more about that in the final segment of this show. Um, we're up some 50% or more at the end of yesterday. Didn't see yesterday's numbers, but with gold rising as dramatically as it is, our gold shares are doing very well uh, so far this year, that's for sure. Lest I forget, I want to thank all of you for listening to this show, and I want to thank our corporate sponsors, too, for making this financially possible. Our, sponsor, our sponsors for this fall season are the final gold, are the uh, following gold mining companies, Apollo Gold, Bonterra Resources, Hawthorne Gold, Metanor Resources, Pediment Gold, Palangio Explorations, and Sand Gold. Well, you can also follow a lot of my work uh, at jtaylormedia.com. I have a daily blog there, and very soon we're going to be announcing a one-hour period each week in which you can send off questions to me, and I will be online to answer those questions. Uh, that's something that we have to determine the best time uh, for that program, and then we'll, uh, we'll let you know on the radio, and also my regular subscribers will be aware of that. We have been suggesting that you raise some cash right now because we do believe that uh, we could see another major decline in the equity markets this fall. 
Um, right now, everybody's feeling pretty euphoric. They're making lots of money. It sort of uh, reminds me of the good times before the bad times came last year. We've been suggesting even that you take some profits off of your gold share holdings and raise some cash and then use that cash for a couple of purposes. One would be to hedge uh, against a major decline in the equity markets. We might do that through the Prudent Bear Fund or an ETF or two. Uh, and also just to build cash to buy gold shares back. We do know that whenever we've had these major um, these major credit implosions like we had last fall, and certainly as happened in the 1930s, the purchasing power of gold goes up very dramatically, and we saw that happen last fall. After uh, Lehman Brothers' decline, we saw an ounce of gold would at one point buy six times more oil than it would have bought before the Lehman Brothers' decline. Now, that's come back a lot so that it's only about twice as much oil an ounce of gold will buy now as before the problems of last year. But nonetheless, the real purchasing power of gold increases during these credit deflationary um, experiences. And Bob Hoy has gone back over the last 300 years and has examined six of these kinds of major credit expansion, credit contraction, global events, and found that in each event, the real price of gold rises very dramatically during the contraction phase of these uh, credit expansion, credit contraction cycles. So we're quite confident that if we get another major decline in the equity markets and in the debt markets, that gold will perform very well. We also can believe that gold will do well in an inflationary environment, and we think there's a, a, a great possibility of that happening uh, as well. Uh, neither event, of course, are happy events, and we're not cheering for either of them, but we are just simply trying to prepare ourselves as best we can to weather the storm that we see coming ahead of us. Well, normally I have my two partners on the show with me, uh, Chen Lin and Roger Wiegand. This week we're going to do a little something a little bit different. I'm going to be flying off to um, Singapore, and so I won't be here to do the show live. And I thought it was a good opportunity to have Catherine Austin Fitz as our special guest. Ms. Fitz had been with us several, oh, a few months back. I don't remember exactly when it was, and she had so much to say. She has... So many pearls of wisdom and, I think, experience uh, with respect to how the real world works and operates, how our political economic system is constructed, that her knowledge of this system is so essential, I think, for fulfilling, uh, well, well, really fulfilling the needs and, and the purpose of this show, which was to understand the origin of our economic problems and uh, and uh, so that we could properly die, uh, properly do something about them, uh, protect ourselves, and if we can in our small way, help to guide our country back in the direction uh, that our founding fathers had envisioned for us. Well, I'm almost sure we won't cover everything we need to talk to Catherine about today. So one of the things I want you to be sure to do is take down this website. It's Solari. Dot com and Catherine can uh, when she comes on can correct me, but you're going to want to go to her um, to her website to gather a lot of information. We're not we're just simply not going to have time to get to today. Um, so anyway, we're going to be back in just a minute after the break to talk to our special guest this week, Catherine Austin Fitz. We'll be right back. Don't go away. Stocks, bonds, investment opportunities, financial news, and talk. We can help. Call us now toll-free, 866-472-5790, 866-472-5790, Voice America Business Network. 
Want to know more about how you can turn financial losses from the most devastating stock market and economic decline since the 1930s into wealth and prosperity? A successful strategy for dealing with adversity requires a proper diagnosis of the problem so that effective remedies can be prescribed. By applying rarely taught Austrian economic theory to policies implemented by our policymakers, Jay Taylor has been able to nearly double the value of his model portfolio since 2000, while the stock market has lost nearly half its value in the worst bear market in decades. At MiningStocks.com, Jay and his associates provide a framework for turning the pains of the current bear market and recession into investment gains. Jay is a frequent radio and TV guest and speaker at investment conferences where he shares his highly profitable Austrian economic insights at a time when most people are seeing their 401ks become 201ks or worse. He is available to share his rare profit-making insights via radio, TV, and public speaking engagements. To profit from Jay's insights, call 718-457-1426 or visit MiningStocks.com to subscribe to his profitable newsletters. As regular listeners to this show know, I am very bullish on gold and especially gold mining stocks. One of my favorite gold mining companies is Metanor Resources, traded Toronto and the Pink Sheets. This is a new gold producer. It is using cash flows from its Barry Mine in Quebec to finance growth of that mine and to put the world-famous Quebec Bachelor Lake Mine back into production. This stock has been recommended by my newsletter because I do believe it holds extraordinary upside price potential with relatively low levels of risk. Visit Metanor's website at metanor.ca or subscribe to my newsletter for more information. For asset security in uncertain times, gold has always been the investment of choice. One of the best ways to profit from gold investing is to buy shares in companies that are exploring and developing gold deposits. Coral Gold is a gold exploration and development company with over 2.3 million drill-indicated ounces of gold. Coral Gold's low market cap allows investors to participate with leverage in a rising gold market. Coral Gold has a long track record of success in Nevada, dating back over 25 years. Visit Coral Gold on the web today at CoralGold.com. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Welcome to the human race. Some kind of love and ride. I'll be sliding down. I'll be gliding down. Try not to try too hard. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Sign up for Jay's newsletter, Jay Taylor's Gold, Energy, and Tech Stocks at www.miningstocks.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm here with a very special guest. This week, she's Catherine Austin Fitz. Well, if you've ever watched the movie Enemy of the State starring Will Smith, you no doubt told yourself, as I did, that this is just fiction. Don't worry about it. Unfortunately, it seems that what happened to Will Smith was not as far-fetched as you might think. Something somewhat similar happened to Catherine Austin Fitz, our guest this week. What is essential for you to realize is that some very significant changes have been taking place in America over the last number of decades that are not only leading to 
impoverishment of our country, but also in, they're leading to the loss of personal liberties. What Catherine is about to tell you should help you understand why we are losing our liberties and our wealth and what you can do to help protect yourself, your family, and your loved ones. And during the 1980s, Catherine worked for Dylan Reed. That was a well-known Wall Street firm at that time. Uh, while at Dylan Reed, Catherine was a board member and a managing director there. Uh, she also reported to Nicholas Brady, who went on to become Treasury Secretary under the first Bush president. Catherine left Wall Street in the late 1980s to become U.S. Assistant Secretary of Housing Commissioner, where her boss then was Jack Kemp. Uh, so Catherine was, by all means, a successful woman in what in those days was still largely a man's world, I think. Yet things turned down for Catherine in many ways, uh, thanks to the actions of the well, for lack of better terms, the ruling elite. Uh, in fact, the same people that I believe are robbing you of your wealth, and more importantly, I think, really most importantly, your personal liberties. As with Ed Griffin, Ron Paul, and um, members of the Gold Antitrust Action Committee who we've had on this show, we have Catherine here to help us understand what is leading to our financial demise, who is responsible for it, and again, what you can do about it. That's probably the most important thing. So thanks again, Catherine, for coming on our show. Oh, thank you, Jay. It's a pleasure to be back. Well, it's, uh, it's really a pleasure to have you as well. I, I just know that uh, once I get started looking at your website and starting to read the Dylan Reed story, uh-huh. uh, it, is a, it is a fascinating story, and you sort of have to say, is this really for real? And, um, well, I believe you're for real. You know, I've never had anyone question that after mm-hmm. reading the Dylan Reed story. I think if you read the Dylan Reed story... It's, it's so credibly put together and uh, documented that you have to believe it. It's a little like um, Ed Griffin's book, I found the same thing yeah. true. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, the, the, the question, uh, when I was Assistant Secretary of Housing, I could never believe that the extent of the mortgage fraud was what some people, you know, what it was rumored to be. Yeah. Because I thought, you know, how could we be, how could the United States Treasury and um, and HUD and and the Department of Justice and the Federal Reserve Banks, particularly J.P. Morgan Chase, is the premier bank at HUD has been for generations. You know how could how could those parties be engaged in massive mortgage fraud? And me as the Assistant Secretary, not know mm. you know not see it, not know about it. You know right. how, how could that be? And it literally took me years to understand. Um, how we could have extraordinary securities fraud being engineered by the federal government, um, you know, with a relatively small number of people really uh, on the line making it operationally possible. You know, and the question I think most people have is how could it possibly have gotten this bad and and me not know? You know, but certainly the hardest thing you'll ever have to do in your life is look in the mirror and say, I was the patsy. (laughs) And I know because I've had to do that. So... Mm -hmm. Um, but well, what happened way, was yeah, I left Wall Street and, and came down to Washington, and I was given the job by Jack Kemp, who was then the Secretary of HUD, to clean up the, the fraud, the mortgage fraud at FHA. And literally, Jay, the problem was I did, you know, I did a much better job than I think they expected. They wanted. Yeah, they just – and here was the problem. We, uh, I remember when I was at HUD, Jack used to – call me in and he'd say, I just told the New York Times we're going to stop all the fraud in this program. I want you to go and cancel the program. And then he'd call my deputy and he said, I just told Fitz to go cancel the program, make sure she fails. 
And that, Jay, was because, on, you know, from a, from a legal standpoint, we needed to be following the Constitution and the law. But from a, from a political and financial standpoint, we needed not to. So, so Kemp, let me be clear here. Kemp said make sure she fails in what regard? To carry out the make sure, anti- Yeah, make sure, make sure that I, I fail in implementing the order he just gave me. To clean up the fraud. Yeah, because what he, what he as a political matter, he needed the, the fraud to keep going. And let me, you know, let me go back and, and take it back in history, because this, this is very old. The mortgage fraud, the derivatives fraud we're looking at is a very old, old business, and that's one of the reasons I wrote the Dylan Reed story was literally someone, you take a person like yourself, very sophisticated, very knowledgeable, very well-educated, you know, it's hard for them to understand without seeing and understanding the logistics and the economics of how this works and how it works really under the umbrella of government and national security law because so much of this is really run behind, you know, government accounts and government authorities. And, um, and you know, there's such a thing as in, in business school as case studies. And I felt that what people, what financially sophisticated people needed was a case study with all the documentation and the footnotes and everything else mm-hmm. that would help them see sort of this vicious uh, one thing, one way to call it a sort of black budget fraud. Mm-hmm. Um, if you go back in history, Jay, in 1947, we passed the, the National Security Act. Mm-hmm. And the National Security Act uh, was then followed two years later by the CIA Act of 1949. And those two laws, and this is described in the Dylan Reed story, those two laws created a legal authority for um, the intelligence agencies and military intelligence to claw out of the federal budget money that could be used for what's what's sometimes called the black budget, which is secret, uh, you know, highly confidential projects, um, uh, and the financing of which, which and the governance of which are really outside of Congress. They don't um, fit into the budget. And this, yeah, this was this was sort of engineered in these two laws. And it made it possible for the CIA and other intelligence operations to claw money out of other agencies' budgets. So you created this secret source of money. And then in 1980, and again, I described this in Dylan, Dylan Reed, in 1980, with an executive order when George H.W. Bush, as vice president, took over the enforcement intelligence operations in the Reagan administration, we, we created authority for private corporations to um, to basically do high-level, highly classified government work. And with the combination of those three sort of structural uh, conditions, what we did was we created a way to um, issue government securities, whether they're mortgage-backed securities or treasuries, so borrow money and spend it on things that create enormous profits and build enormous technology for private industry in a way that's outside of congressional control. So you've created, you know, if, if you want to talk about a breakdown of internal financial controls, mm-hmm. it's the mother of all breakdowns. And, well, and, sorry, go ahead. Well, how big do you think this is? I mean, you're, you know, in terms of this black budget, this, this money that's not accountable relative to the entire budget, for example, is it a, is it a really large piece of change? Well, here's what I think it is. I think it's larger than the budget in this sense. If you look at the history of this sort of mechanism, 
and the the parallel unit this private parallel universe that it financed that universe grew more and more powerful and then in the mid 90s 4 trillion dollars literally went missing from the federal government 4 trillion 4 trillion from fiscal 1998 to 2002 4 trillion dollars went missing and then um once that was over, we've had the $12 billion bailouts. Uh, I'm sorry, trillion-dollar bailouts. I can't even say the word trillion. Yeah. And, 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 and I think what you've been watching is the steady increase in the power of this sort of secret, non-transparent world, enough so that they could steal $4 trillion or, or hold the government hostage to give them $12 trillion. Um, I had a very intelligent commentator on the whole process once said, the problem after World War II was the government lost control of the technology. And what he meant was the government lost control of the most powerful, you know, military and intelligence, you know, technology. And, and part and parcel of that losing control was nevertheless creating this governmental, for, you know, way of, of, um, of, of financing it. Mm-hmm. So, so let me get back to the Dylan Reed story. What, yes. what is very hard, you have wonderful Americans all over the country for the last 50 years who struggled to stop either mortgage fraud or narcotics trafficking in their community. If, if you look at America, America breaks down to 3,100 counties. Mm-hmm. And truly, Jay, all political power is really, you know, county by county. All, mm-hmm. all, you know, all real estate is local and all politics are local, which mm-hmm. is one of the reasons working at it was so interesting because it's a real... Um, you know, it's it's a real window onto that onto that world of sort of local control and politics and mm-hmm. and the role of real estate in it. Anyway, um, wonderful people in communities all over America have tried to stop the corruption, mm-hmm. and and they always run up against this incredible force. You know, so you have twenty soccer moms get together, think that they can stop corruption in their community. And all of a sudden, they have black helicopters and James Bond coming out on their head, and they can't, you know, it's very hard for them to compute that Tony Soprano is financing James Bond. Yes. You know, and so when you try and, and and the other thing that's very hard to compute, and I ran into it, one of the reasons I wanted to write Dylan Reed was to help people understand the, the relationship between narcotics trafficking and mortgage fraud, because so often... You know, if, let's say I bring um, a hundred thousand. I sell a hundred thousand dollars of cocaine in 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 a community. How am I going to launder that money? Well, the way to launder it is is in a, some kind of securitized form that gives you a tremendous multiple. So if you launder it through a fast food restaurant that's trading at a multiple of thirty to one, mm-hmm. well, for every hundred thousand you launder through, you can create three million dollars in the stock market. You know, and that's before all sorts of things you can do with derivatives and, you know, other fancy stuff. Um, but another way you can launder it through, and this was made famous because the Soprano TV show had a great series on HUD fraud. Um, you can launder it through all sorts of HUD foreclosed properties. And my theory uh, is, and, and the Dylan Reed story helps to explain some of this, my theory is that Literally, what we've been seeing on the, in the subprime, you know, when people talk about subprime mortgage, the problem is not the mortgages underwater. The problem is that there are 10 mortgages on that house. Mm. And, and in fact, you know, if you look at, at what I've written with Dylan Reed or other stories, I, 
explain the details of what's happened to me and sort of my personal experience that has led me to believe that the the amount of mortgage securities outstanding is far greater than than the number of of mortgages. You know, if you add up all the mortgages, the legitimate mortgages mm-hmm. um, on all the real homes, it's going to be a lot less than the mortgage securities outstanding. And I suspect that's what the bailout part of what this twelve trillion dollars is going. I'm not sure that I can, that I understand how that could happen. How could you have so many more mortgages? Well, here's how: if if you take a Ginnie Mae security, mm-hmm. I mean, you you take. Uh, uh, FHA mortgages, which are guaranteed by the government, and then you take Ginnie Mae securities, which are guaranteed by the government. Um, you know, it's the equivalent of having a full faith and credit. So if investors are buying something with full faith and credit, they never check to make yeah. sure that, you know, that those mortgages really attach to that home, wow. et cetera, et cetera. Hmm. So, so remember, we're with the black budget rules, we're behind national security law. Mm. So I think what's been happening, because we would see neighborhoods in Chicago literally where a house would be purchased and default four or five times in a year in, in the HUD foreclosed properties. Mm. And I could never figure out how a property could turn over that many times in a year. Mm. And what I think was happening was you just had serial defaults to generate the money to keep the debt service up, you know, on the fact that that, that house probably had 10 mortgages in some Ginnie Mae pool. Incredible. Now, it's, you know, this sounds very Orwellian and wild, but um, I'll give you an example of how this, I first came onto this. When we were, um, after I left HUD, I started Hamilton Securities, which was an investment bank and financial software developer in Washington. And a couple of years later, we got hired back on competitive bid to serve as financial advisor to the Department of Housing and Urban Development. And there's massive documentation about all of this in the resource section behind the story of Dylan Reed. Mm-hmm. And um, I had been part of a group of people, Jay, who was very instrumental in getting laws passed in the Bush, first Bush administration to require the covered agencies of the United States government, so the majority of agencies, to produce audited financial statements. Mm-hmm. And because um, a lot of the Iran-Contra and fraud that I cleaned up when I was the commissioner clearly couldn't have happened if you had a certain standard of, of accrual financial statements. Mm-hmm. So um, this law kicked in in 1995, and a process began where agencies started to report that they couldn't comply with the law and, and how, much mu- how, how much their books were out of balance. That's how we know the Fortrain is missing, mm-hmm. because there was a process whereby they came in and reported and said, well, we can't produce audit. And to this day, the government, the U.S. government, has never once complied with that law or produced audited financial statements. Oh, well. Anyway, so, so, but FHA, the Federal Housing uh, Administration, the FHA mortgage, mortgage insurance funds at HUD produced their first financial statements, and a friend of mine pestered me to death to to meet with a mortgage broker from New York who was a close personal friend of her. Her family was in banking. And um, the guy came in to see me. I finally agreed to see him just to kind of make it go away. And he brought in this huge pile of papers, and he says, my family's been in the mortgage banking business for three generations, and our core competency is we collect, uh, you know, we track all FHA, government-insured mortgages, and related securities in the market and have done so ever since FHA was founded in 1934. You know, my grandfather, blah, blah, blah. And and he said there's been some terrible mistake. If you look at the amount of FHA mortgages shown on this balance sheet in the new audit financial statements, uh, he said the actual outstanding FHA mortgages is many multiples of that. 
Oh. Well, I thought the guy was crazy. Mm. You know, because what he was saying was the U.S. Treasury and the Department of Justice and J.P. Morgan Chase and and the Federal Reserve System was engaged in mass, and the you know the whole system was engaged in massive fraud. securities fraud. And I just thought the guy was nuts, and he tried to give me a copy of his database, and I said, no, 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 no. You know, I, boy, do I wish I had taken it, although mm-hmm. I'd probably be dead if I had. Yeah. So, so um, what happened was, subsequent, and the reason I went back and started to research all of this, was subsequent, we had decided, um, what I found when I was a commissioner, Jay, mm-hmm. is that if you want to stop most corruption in this country, Mm-hmm. One way to do it is to simply give uh, citizens the same standard of financial reporting they get from a corporation when they buy its stock or bonds. Mm-hmm. So if you get the equivalent of a 10K and, and quarterly reports for the sources and uses of government money mm-hmm. within the, the political jurisdiction that you vote for representation, so within your congressional district, mm-hmm. then you have the information, you have the financial map, as it were, that you need to hold your congressman accountable. Right, but we okay. don't have that, of course. Right, and we don't have that. And so we decided we were going to make a software tool that would basically do that. You know, geographic information software had come along, and it and so we created and the web had come along. So we started to work on a software tool that would allow you as a citizen to go in and, you know, look at the sources and uses of federal resources, credit, contracts, appropriation, within your congressional district or your zip code, whatever you define as your place, and then start to make very amazing pictures that would allow you to sort of see if it makes sense or not. And we, mm-hmm. what we started to find out was that the corruption was unbelievable off the charts. Mm. And part of the, the, our relationship with the government turning sour was um, they seized our offices and, and stole that tool, kept it under court control for six years, and then when I finally got it back, the most important pieces were stolen for good. Well, this leads me then to your, this is your experience at Hamilton Securities, right? And this is, Correct. This is your story where um, some of the things in your life are comparable to what happened in the fictitious Right, and it was character. very funny when I saw the movie. I used to call Enemy of the State my training film. Will Smith's office was a block away from where our, it was right next to where our office was in Washington. We were right, had beautiful offices over DuPont Circle. That's incredible. And it, you know what? And, and it's one of those situations where one day, you know, I'm living in a beautiful mansion. My company's wildly successful. I'm, you know, I've so I've got a wonderful company. I live in a beautiful mansion. Everything's perfect. My reputation is, you know, impeccable. There's not a a problem. You know, it's blue sky. And mm-hmm. then, literally, in 24 hours, your, you know, your own family thinks you're a serial killer. Yeah, and it's so it's so astonishing. And you're dealing, you know, I was dealing with physical harassment, and there's there's literally no one you can go to. You know, the what you have to do is figure out how to find Gene Hackman quickly. <laughs> well, uh, okay, so let's. Uh, you mentioned a little while ago that Jack Kemp, you know, hired you down there at, at, at HUD, and he wanted you to clean up the fraud, and but that you were doing probably too good of a job. And, uh, and I, as I understand it, when the Hamilton Securities Group then really provided some unwelcome competition in the investment banking arena, 
with respect to HUD's activities. Is that right? Right. What happened was we were hired. Um, HUD was doing, had about $12 billion of defaulted mortgages. And after the Resolution Trust Corporation resolved a lot of this, the savings and loan portfolio, and you saw a lot of private industry resolve their own portfolios, one of the remaining portfolios from the last housing bubble burst was the foreclosed properties at, at HUD and mostly FHA. And so uh, we were hired to help them figure out what are they going to do about them. And uh, what came out of that effort was the loan sale program. We were the lead financial advisor. And what happened was the loan sale program was a wild success, much more successful than anyone had anticipated. One, it wasn't thought possible that HUD was operationally capable of doing a loan sale. But what I knew... um, having been the commissioner, was that the way you get something done in a complex matrix structure in the government is you, you run a reg process. And if you look at the design um, process used to develop software, uh, we used a very similar a combination of the two, whereby literally you write, you write a book. The first design book was 2,000 pages of what everybody was going to do and how they're going to do it, and then everybody signs it. And then things work like a hot knife through butter. So that was sort of one big innovation. But the second thing we did was we hired Bell Laboratories to use their optimization technology that had been developed for AT&T routing phone calls to bid the mortgages in a way that would allow the securities market and the real estate market and the mortgage market to all compete by allowing them to self-pool their mortgages. As a result, Jake, to give you an example, our first loan sale we did, we auctioned a billion-dollar principal amount of loans OMB, for purposes of the budget, valued them as, I think it was $290 million, and then we sold them for 710 which meant um, under the budget it generated a $420 million profit. And as a political matter, what that meant was that $420 million was going into private pockets. Mm. Um, and so the government was – there had been an arbitrage, if you will – the private sector was getting the arbitrage of sort of doing business with, with quote-unquote, a dumb player. Mm-hmm. And what we did was set up a process whereby instead that arbitrage shifted back to the, you know, we squeezed out the arbitrage and HUD got it. Uh-huh. And, and so what that did was it, it shifted a lot of relationships in the, in the private sector, and you had people who, who'd sort of been on the inside making money Making lots of money. Making lots of, well, some were making a little bit of money. Some were making lots of money. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, what we hadn't realized is one of the players who was making the most money on the old system mm-hmm. was the enforcement bureaucracies. Oh. It turned out, well, everybody makes, that's the problem when you get these government systems going. People make more money on failure, and so they don't want things to be, you know, they sure. need narcotics trafficking, they need mortgage fraud, they need... Mm-hmm enforcement fees. They, do you know what I mean? Everybody's yeah. making money from failure. So there's no incentive to fix it up and clean it up. Uh, well, and, and part of the reason I wrote the Dylan Reed model is I wanted from all the way from the street level up to the Wall Street, up to the White House, I wanted people to see what it was like. There was a competition of two models. Our model said, you know, one model said basically, look, um, the population is aging. We can't afford these contingent liabilities. Let's pull the money out now, reinvest it in the emerging markets, and leave the American people high and dry, you know, so bye-bye middle class. Mm-hmm. 
And, of course, all that was known in the early 90s. We knew it. We were discussing it. And, and I said, no, wait a minute. Here's, there is, if, you, if you look at how the money works in America by county, we have a deep negative return on investment of the government money that's propping up the private money. Uh-huh. And if we re-engineer that negative return on investment to a positive return on investment, the capital gains opportunity is huge. That capital gains can, can go to the pension funds. That's the money you need for the, you know, for the boomer's retirement, mm-hmm. and all will be well. Mm-hmm. The problem with that is it doesn't begin to pump up the, the um, you know, it doesn't keep, it, it, you're competing now with a black budget, and you're, you're making corporations compete on an economic footing instead of subsidizing them with government money. Mm. And, um, you know, and that makes them less competitive globally. Well, that would sound like free market to me. Well, but, but you know, essentially, I was proposing capitalism, mm-hmm. and what I was, uh, what we were competing with was basically something else. <laughs> you know, I don't, want, I don't want to use trigger words to describe it, but it yeah. was basically a planned economy. Yes, it's a very not free market. a very controlled economy, and it was what I call a tapeworm economy, where the insiders are doing a variety of things to drain out the capital, you know, f- for a variety of different purposes, some of which, you know, I'm sure I could argue helped keep the U.S. dollar up and some of which simply siphoned money off for, you know, projects anywhere from, you know, shifting money into Asia or, you know, building more platforms in space because I think space is, you know, has been a, big area of investment for the for the black budget. So but but you see the Dylan Reed case study was designed to say, okay, here's here are two models. Here's a you know, one model that's lawful and believes in building up human capital mm-hmm. and here's another one that believes in just harvesting and taking. And and, and squeezing what is, the middle class, essentially. Well it's ba- yeah, it's basically saying we had the you know, we we came out of World War II. We had this generation build a huge amount of capital, and now we're just going to steal it um, by pumping and dumping. You know, we bubble the economy, we pull all the capital out. And one of the stories I tell in the Dylan Reed um, in the Dylan Reed story is I I we had done years of work at Hamilton to sort of figure out how pension funds could really jump the curve on this whole situation meet their actuarial targets to support the boomers um, and, and, you know, sort of get the benefit of reinvesting in a, in a, in a serious reengineering of government money in America. So I had a wonderful group of pension fund leaders who I'd been working with who were on an advisory board for one of my subsidiaries. And I took this, um, the chairman was a wonderful man. He was out at, uh, uh, at Safeguard Scientific, a money manager outside of Philadelphia, Mm-hmm. And we had a board meeting out there, and I took the whole presentation, and we had done an analysis as our example of government money flowing into Philadelphia for the prior year. And we estimated, you know, we showed our estimation that the return on investment on the government investment was negative. Essentially, government was paying a huge amount of people from welfare recipients to corporations to be stupider. Mm-hmm. So, so, and we showed how, how you could turn it around, and it could generate huge capital gains for the pension funds. And I'll never forget it. Bill, Bill Christ, who was president of CalPERS, the largest pension fund in the country, looked mm-hmm. at me and he said, oh, my God, you know, there's hope. It's not too late. Mm-hmm. And I said, absolutely. And we had a, 
incredible conversation. Everybody was so excited. And then he said, he froze and he said, you don't understand, it's too late. They've given up on the, on, the, on the country. They're moving all the money out starting in the fall. And that fall, Jay, was the beginning of fiscal 1998, federal fiscal year. And that's when the $4 trillion started to go missing. And we had the pump and dump of the Internet and telecom stocks and Enron. And my back of the envelope is between, you know, $4 trillion out of the federal budget that we know of and then another... Lord knows how much private capital they pulled out with the pump and dump. And anyway, my back of the envelope is we pulled about ten trillion out of the economy, and that was before the, you know, the bailouts. Before these latest bailouts. Now, when you use the word "they," who are they? Well, of course, that's the sixty-four thousand dollar question. And, well, sixty-four um, trillion these days, probably. <laughs> Good point. <laughs> you know, there's a new monopoly game yeah. that reflects inflation. Instead of having a $500 bill, they've got a $5 million bill. Right. It's pretty amazing. So $4 trillion went missing. They took it out. They, this, this man you knew at CalPERS says it's too late. They have given right. up well, the country. Well, in my, I mean, my experience is basically that the government, you know, the, the capital in the United States and globally is managed by you know, a variety of, I, I don't know, because I'm not privy to this information, Jay, but mm-hmm. but basically you have a variety of different groups like the Council on Foreign Relations, the Bilderbergers, the Bohemian Grove. You have a variety of different committees, and they meet and build consensus and make decisions. You know, ultimately it seems to be pretty centrally controlled. I think the day-to-day bureaucracy is now evolving to be G, you know, the G20 from the yeah. G8. Mm-hmm. Um and and it kind of works. There are two sides of the house. One is the central banking side, and the other is the military side. Yeah. And and that's how you run it. And you kind of keep everybody in the dark by keeping the central banking very separate from the military. And very secret. And very secret, but it's um, uh, you know, I mean, it, in my experience, I grew up in Philadelphia. Philadelphia was run by the secret societies, mm-hmm. and you would literally have the you know, groups get in a room and you'd have, uh, you know, a variety of different parties from all the different institutions. And, of course, uh, if you ever tried to explain to everybody, oh, well, you know, this really was planned, they say, oh, no, 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 there are too many different institutions involved. Yes. It could never... Yes. It could never be... It could uh, never be planned. <laughs> yeah, it, could, it, could, it could never... Um, and that's, you know, that's why I've no tried so hard to interest people in looking at the sources and uses of of resources, both... Mm-hmm. Money, credit, taxation by place, because money doesn't lie. Mm-hmm. And and the the you know I'm often asked why I'm such an optimist. The reason I'm an optimist is having having basically built this incredible database infrastructure that would allow me to look at the U.S. economy by place. What I understood was um, the you know the the current wealth both in the United States and on the planet is less than one percent of what it could be, Jay. Wow. And it's because the central control is so, um, you know, it forces such a sub-optimization. I'll never forget um, when we were working with Bell Laboratories on the, uh, on the optimization technology, we discovered they, they were also using that technology to route airline scheduling hmm. and, um, 
in a situation where the crews were allowed to put in preferences, and then they would optimize everybody's preferences and build the schedule. So a pilot could say, look, I, you know, I, I want to fly to Asia, and I don't want to fly to Europe, and I do want to fly, but I don't want to fly these days because it's my birthday. You know, and they could put in a long list of sort of desires and preferences, mm-hmm. and they could, you know, literally optimize for thousands of, of crew members. And over many, many years, they were able to build up um, uh, sort of, you know, what if, uh, what if, you know, they, they could price the cost of a regulation or a rule or constraint. Mm-hmm. And one of the things they found out was the, the pilots had seniority, and so they were allowed to, to require that their needs be met before everybody else could be optimized around them. Mm. And what they discovered was that if, if they just deleted all seniority, mm-hmm. the pilots would do better. Because the right? whole pie would be made so much bigger. Oh, that's incredible. Right. Well, no, but that that's why free markets are so powerful. Yep, yep. Yeah, yeah. Because but people they don't understand that. And, of course, we all think we know, but, but once you let a free market work, what happens is that shared intelligence kicks in. It makes us so much smarter than we would ever be otherwise. And, and you know, that's why I'm very concerned about this notion that capitalism is bad, mm-hmm. because I, frankly, would love to try capitalism. We should try it for a We should try it. Has it ever been tried in America? We should try it. It hasn't been tried, so I think we should try it because, you know, I mean, what, we, what my calculation showed at Hamilton was that, uh, you know, the potential wealth to be created if, 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 if the average person can just be unleashed from the, from the centralization, yes. ooh la la. Yeah. So when did we try it? I mean, we were closer to it at one time in our history, for sure, because we're, we're straying further away from it all the time now. Well, I, here's, here's my take on it. I think, that, I think the seminal question is, when did we lose control of the technology? And, of course, it's in phases. But the more te- technology allows a few to have a much higher learning speed than, you know, than the many, then, then you start, and, and you can back that control up with force. I mean, very subtly in America, and certainly I've had a real outward-bound MBA education in this, mm-hmm. force is very important in, in, in determining what happens. And, you know, there are, we have all sorts of subtle tactics to make it very unpleasant for people who don't... Who don't comply. To, yeah, who don't toe the line. And, and we've had plenty of assassinations. Mm-hmm. We've had plenty of, you know, uh, I mean, I'm just very lucky to be alive. Well, I wish we had more time to talk about some of that. And as I said in the lead-in to this segment, that we're not going to have enough time to get even uh-huh. begin to scratch the surface with you because you have so much more to talk about. We've talked a lot of theory and, and reality for sure today. But uh, since our listeners are investors, I know that you do provide some investment ideas to your subscribers, I believe. Sure. We have a wonderful, uh, we do a, a, the equivalent of an investment newsletter by Bridge Call three times a month. Uh-huh. It's called the Solari Report. And in fact, Jay, we have a special for everybody who subscribes annually during October. Oh, good. Uh, we're giving $75 to GATA because, as you know, GATA is about to bring a lawsuit against the Federal Reserve. Fantastic. To hold them accountable, and so we want to do everything we can to support and help them. Um, and I, we tonight is going to be the precious metals. Once a month, we do a precious metals report with Franklin Sanders of the Money Changer, and a lot, uh, a lot of what I have recommended and, and advised over the last ten years is to 
is to get out of, you know, basically bubble paper mm-hmm. and get back into things that you know, understand, and essentially tangibles. Mm-hmm. So, and precious metals, of course, is the is the preferred global currency that is tangible and not uh, clearly all markets are manipulated. So we've had a, you know, we've had we've had all sorts of manipulation and suppression of the gold and silver price. But I think I think the you know the time is has come to get out of the bubble and get back into what's real. Well, that's for sure. Do you see? Do you have an opinion with respect to the the markets now? I know that you, I know that you suggested that you thought that the ruling elite, for better, lack of better terms, might be able to keep this game going a long time yet. Do you see that happening, or yes, as gold uh, is hitting new highs, I have a, the dollar is crashing? Might we be nearing an end? Burn is where the insiders can can literally constantly uh, drain the outsiders, and, and you think um, that's, yeah. and I see the slow burn. Continuing now, of course, when uh, when we come into a situation where we could get a real fall, what you get is you get these covert events. You get 9/11, you get war in Afghanistan, you get war in Iraq. And I think my fear is not that we're going to get a global financial meltdown. My fear is we're going to get more and more war. And that's to distract people from the financial. Well, that's just to extract the subsidy. Yeah. You know, force force is you know I hate to say it right now on planet Earth crime pays and yeah. and um, literally Jay what we've done is we have created the most elegant financial mechanism ever created we print paper other people buy it and then it goes down in value so we've created a, ta- a global taxation system through the balance sheet and of course that can only work if you've got the satellites the surveillance and the military to back it up so the drones yeah and that that's really why you've got this the central banking warfare model, which the central banking warfare model has created the lowest cost of capital for the people successful at that model. Yeah. And I think that's what we're all searching for because what we're seeing now is the destruction of it is outweighing the the benefits and and literally we've you know we've our productivity is just sinking like a stone mm-hmm. because um you know, cost of capital is being determined by weaponry as opposed to economic productivity. And, of course, that, you know, that just doesn't go to a great place. So fewer and fewer people are getting richer and richer, but the vast majority of people are losing out financially. Right. And the thing to understand, because what we've got to do is get out of win-lose thinking if we're going to get out of this. Yeah. The thing to understand is the pie is about 1% of what it could be. Right. And what we're looking to do, and this is what goes back to the Dylan Reed story, how do you flip the model? How do you flip the model to one where everybody's in the business of making the pie bigger instead of shrinking the pie? Okay, Catherine, when you have the answer to that, will you come back on and tell us? Yeah, when, when can you have me back? I think I do. Oh, well, I'll, I'll have you back as soon as we can. There's so much to talk about. And what we should do sometime probably is, is, is take some calls from people. Tell us oh, one more be time before we, say, uh, before we say goodbye to you how people can learn more about you. Your website is solari.com. Sure, come is to com. We have a wonderful blogs at uh, solari.com slash blog. You can sign up for updates and stay in touch. And we've got all sorts of stuff you can do and, and connect and relate to. So. Well. Okay, well, thank you, Catherine. We've got to go. That's that's all have the time we have, unfortunately. And thank day, you so Jay. much for thank you so much for coming back on, and we will have you on again as soon as possible. Thank you very much, folks. Don't go away. I'll be right back with the wrap up for this week.
Apollo Gold is a gold-producing and exploration company that recently brought the brand-new Black Fox Mine into production. Apollo's 100% owned Black Fox Mine is located in the world-renowned gold-producing district of Timmins, Ontario, Canada. It's expected to produce over 100,000 ounces of gold annually. Apollo Gold also has tremendous potential for additional gold discovery as they continue their current exploration program on their recent new discovery at the Gray Fox property, which is adjacent to the Black Fox Mine, as well as its new land acquisition of Pike River. With gold prices near an all-time high, investors should consider Apollo Gold as an outstanding opportunity to invest in an undervalued junior gold mining company, well positioned to take advantage of a bull gold market. Apollo Gold trades on the New York Stock Exchange under the ticker symbol AGT and on the Toronto Stock Exchange under the ticker symbol APG. Visit Apollo's website at www.apollogold.com. Apollo Gold, a golden opportunity for investment. As regular listeners to this show know, I am very bullish on gold and especially gold mining stocks. One of my favorite gold mining companies is Metanor Resources Traded Toronto and the Pink Sheets. This is a new gold producer. It is using cash flows from its Berry Mine in Quebec to finance growth of that mine and to put the world-famous Quebec Bachelor Lake Mine back into production. This stock has been recommended by my newsletter because I do believe it holds extraordinary upside price potential with relatively low levels of risk. Visit Metanor's website at metanor.ca or subscribe to my newsletter for more information. For asset security in uncertain times, gold has always been the investment of choice. One of the best ways to profit from gold investing is to buy shares in companies that are exploring and developing gold deposits. Coral Gold is a gold exploration and development company with over 2.3 million drill-indicated ounces of gold. Coral Gold's low market cap allows investors to participate with leverage in a rising gold market. Coral Gold has a long track record of success in Nevada, dating back over 25 years. Visit Coral Gold on the web today at CoralGold.com. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. Welcome to the human race. Some kind of love and ride. I'll be sliding down, I'll be gliding down. Try not to try too hard. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Sign up for Jay's newsletter, Jay Taylor's Gold, Energy, and Tech Stocks at www.miningstocks.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. This is the wrap-up for this week. My partner, Roger Wiegand and Chen Lin, neither of them are with me this week. Uh, We did have an extensive discussion with Catherine Austin Fitz. Never enough time with Catherine, so we will have her back on sometime and perhaps sometime open up the phone lines for questions to you, uh, to Catherine from you. Um, Again, let me just plug miningstocks.com to listen to Chen Lin. Roger Wiegand can be uh, followed at webeatthestreet.com. You can sign up for their special offers by calling my assistant, Claudio Bossi, at 718-457-1426. That's Claudio Bossi, 718-457-1426. Uh, you can also follow a lot of my work, uh, a daily blog, at jtaylormedia.com. That's jtaylormedia.com. 
Also, goldinvestor.com, another blog site uh, where I'm involved, uh, is a very, very good site with lots of information about gold. And also, if you'd like to know some very interesting companies that are appearing on my radar screen, we have something called jayswatchlist.com. That's J-A-Y-S watchlist.com. Companies that I'm finding of some interest, companies that are, uh, that are telling their story to me, I'm taking a look at to determine whether or not they might be a fit for my newsletter. Uh, and so there are some very interesting things there you might want to take a look again at jayswatchlist.com. Uh, before we go, I, I want to thank all of you again for listening to this show. I also want to, uh, uh, to I also want to thank our our sponsors for coming on and making this show uh, possible. I also want to thank the people at Voice America who are instrumental in making this show work. Uh, Tacy Trump, my executive producer; Ruben Colombe, operations manager; Travis Ortwin, my engineer uh, during the live broadcast at least and uh, I want to thank you again for listening now next week uh, next week I'm going to have Robert Prechter Robert Prechter who is probably the best known Elliott Wave practitioner in the world we do talk frequently to um, Dr. Robert McHugh who I think is uh, is every bit as good as Robert Prechner but Bob Prechner who is a, a staunch deflationist he doesn't see how the central banks will be able to inflate the money supply, or, or will be able to inflate the currency uh, and inflate the, I should say, inflate prices. Um, I think he, he understands that they are pumping money into the system, but to get that money to translate into much, much higher prices and a, run, a runaway inflation, uh, Prechter does not see that happening unless he's changed his mind very drastically between now and next week or the following week. That will be the 20th of October when I have Robert Prechter on. Following that, Rob Kirby, another very, a very, very intelligent guest, will be on with us as well. So uh, until next week, um, I'll have to say goodbye. We're out of time. Uh, goodbye and God's blessings to you. Thank you again for listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor. Please join us again next Tuesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Now the thing about time is the time. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. 